Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Infection Control Matters. I'm joined, uh, as ever, by Brett Mitchell in Australia. Hi, Brett. Thank you very much. Nice to see you. Oh, here you. Here you, yeah. And uh, <laughs> our special guests this week are from Ireland, from Beaumont Hospital, uh, and I'm pleased to talk to Mairead Scully, who's a uh, surveillance scientist at the Beaumont Hospital, and Professor Philadelphia Fitzpatrick, who's the uh, head of microbiology at the hospital and also has a key role with the Royal College of Surgeons, where she's head of the Department of uh, Clinical Microbiology. Um, so you've published a recent paper about Clostridium difficile showing not much change over quite a long period of surveillance. So, Murray, do you want to outline the piece of work? And uh, we'll tease out some of the issues that after that, if that's OK. Sure. Um, so first of all, thank you for having us. Um, it's really, it's a very serene experience for me to be on the podcast. Um, we find it but... very surreal ourselves. We do too. as well, we yeah. To, yeah. We get to speak to all kinds of people over the world, and every time we get yeah. someone on, I think, wow, it's always something fascinating <laughs> we're hearing from, and it's fascinating people, so the pleasure's ours, and thank yeah, you. Absolutely. Yeah, so really lovely to be here, and actually it's quite surprising for me because I suppose this is work that I do day in, day out. And the paper that we have published really is an opportunity um, that I had last year really to take a step back and look at our CDF data. So the database that we have um, was built out of a need to streamline our data collection processes to complement the multidisciplinary approach that we have in the hospital to CDF surveillance. So when I started back in 2012, it was very much a case where people were working in siloed Excel files. So we thought an access database was probably the best, uh, most common platform that we could utilize to, you know, um, uh, develop into our needs. So that started back in 2012 and it's a semi-automated system. So our laboratory results are automatically uploaded into it. And then that data is complemented by our clinical microbiology team, our antimicrobial pharmacist, our infection control nurse colleagues, and by uh, myself and my surveillance colleagues in the office where we would look at things like previous history of C. diff, um, and prior to the current record that we're looking at, we look at things like ribotype, if they've had antibiotics. Um, we'd also look to see how long they've been in, if they're nursing home patients. So we have quite a wealth of information that we capture um, in this database. And it's evolved quite a bit over the 10 years. Um, um, now, we do look at it. We report from it monthly. So uh, we discuss our cases every week at a multidisciplinary forum. And then we would report on our cases each month to our senior management, to um, our Infection Prevention Control Committee. We'd also report our data to the Health Protection Surveillance Centre. Um, but we would trend from year to year but really to get down into the granularity of what we collect each week and each month, there's never really an opportunity to do that because obviously we're all so busy and there's other priorities. We can't we can't just focus on CDF all the time. So this was a, a really a phenomenal opportunity for me to take that step back and, and um, to, to look at it in a bit more detail. So in the paper, what we found really was that over the 10 years in total, there was no change in our healthcare uh, associated CDF infections overall. Now, when you look at it, um, you can see there was a decline at certain times and then it started to increase again from about 2017 onwards. And there was a couple of different things that happened in the time period. So um, I suppose one of the most surprising things for us was when we changed to our more sensitive 
testing method we moved to PCR EIA, we really thought we would see a jump in our cases, but that that didn't happen. About what year was that that you uh, changed your, your methodology? 2015. 2015, 2015. yeah, okay. Yeah, so we moved to end 2015. And actually, if you look at the graph that's in the paper, you can see it, it did steadily decline until about 2017. And then it gradually increased again. So everything yeah. that we actually did quite a number of things in 2015. So we did um, things like rolling mattress audits. Uh, we changed uh, our pre- prescribing in that we introduced vidaxamycin in the hospital. We also changed our testing methods. And it, it wasn't as if there was a huge jump at any point after those uh, introductions were made. Uh, it was more of a gradual decline. And then from mm. 2017, it increased again. Any ideas why that in 2017 it, it started to, to increase? No, I not really. I mean, there's nothing hugely um, obvious, you know, I, I, like I've been part of the team since 2012. So, you know, mm. I'd have an awareness of when certain decisions were made and Fidelma and myself chat, chatted through, you know, our history and what we've been trying to do as an infection control team to control C. diff. So at that time, there was nothing really obvious. Um, mm. If you move on then to 2019, we had a hospital-wide outbreak of Ribotype 002, that was also reported at, um, at a national level, um, but that was two years later. So you can't you can't attribute it to that. Um, mm-hmm. So there was nothing really obvious to stand out. And it's a kind of gradual increase. It's not like it was a major change in our rates. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do look at it in depth each month. You know, we were very proactive in our outbreak investigations and increased incidence management. So we have a good handle week to week. But yeah, pretty, yeah, I don't know, Fidelma, do you have any thoughts as to... Well, Fidelma, just before that as well, you might want to comment. After 2019, there was a bit of a drop and sort of 2019, 2020, and then sort of stayed, stayed down again. So yeah, any, any thoughts on that or anything else? That... The thing with this, that we were particularly pleased the paper was published because this is real life. So yeah. we're based in a busy working hospital that has predominantly multi-bedded bays. So you've got six adults, sometimes seven, seven, sharing one bathroom with limited isolation capacity. And that's just the way it is. So even with all the effort to do what you do, you have to keep at it. And I think, you know, if I thought the theme of the paper that we were particularly pleased that people were interested in it because it is real life. You know, papers often mm. go, jazz hands, we tried this, and now it's a great success, and jazz hands, aren't we fantastic? Mm. And we all know that what, when the paper stops, what happens next is never published. So because we, myself and Maraid, um, have been around the block a bit, we've been <laughs> present along with many of the other authors on the paper. So we've been doing this consistently as part of the team for that decade and more. And despite all the ups and downs, you have to keep at it. And that's it. Because if you've mm-hmm. got sick patients and multi-bedded bays, you have to have a robot pro- process of detecting C. diff and acting on it, don't you? you know? yeah. So we test, in the hospital, we test seven days a week. And mm-hmm. what we've outlined in the paper, we were anxious to get it out there. Not that it's rocket science, but it's the process we adopt. Um, so you test seven days a week. Everything is phoned, including things we think, uh, sorry, anything that's PCR positive, be it EIA positive or negative, is always phoned. 
And we always have a discussion with the team on the same day. And that's by a clinical microbiologist. And at that point, we decide whether it's it's a case or not immediately. But every single week, we review the previous week's cases. And from a surveillance purpose, then we tag them as cases or not. Because the thing is, with testing and surveillance and infection control for C. diff is so interlinked, you know, who you test, how you test, and then what you do with the results. So you can't be waiting for a surveillance meeting to decide to isolate patients, for example. So that's done on the same day and the treatment is done on the same day. And then every week we review the previous week's case, as Mairead said, you you know, because just to put them in the box of origin, onset and all the rest of it. And then every month and then every quarter. So we've quite a robust process in being confident with our data. But when you look at all the ups and downs, it's very interesting that bar the, you know, the 002 outbreak that happened in 2009, no, 19, um, it's it's just hard work. You have to keep at it. But of course, yeah. we have to keep at it because it's our context. We have this 800 and something bed hospital. It's predominantly multi, multi-bedded base. Our catchment area, we've generally older people with multiple comorbidities. And mm-hmm. from all of our decades of point prevalence antibiotic use, anything between probably one and three and one and four patients on a hospital ward is likely to be on an antibiotic at any one time. So we've, in a way, we've a perfect condition to have an outbreak. And I'd look at the paper to say, the fact we actually haven't been in outbreak mode for a decade is incredible. Mm. So because of all of that. So, you know, when when we look at our cases, we, we the epidemiology, we, we send our our specimens over to the, our colleagues in the UK for ribotyping. It's only in the last year we've had a national reference lab in, in Ireland and the guys in Leeds actually have provided a really good service for us. Um, but again, you know, they're in another country. So you have to act on things. And then when the ribotype results or the MLVA come back, you can confirm your outbreak. Because um, mm. it looked to me like 002 had been steadily increasing. And then in 2019, there was a very big jump. Yeah. And then you seem yeah. to control it. So can you have you got any ideas why you suddenly got that increase? Or do you think it was just a result of maybe the background, uh, you know, level of colonization pressure in the organization was getting to a point where you actually had the outbreak? Because and then what did you do to bring it down? Because now it's back at the normal proportion, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we do lots of things and Ray jump in, you know, so from the infection control end of things, sometimes it's the basics that you fall down on. So it's the human beings. We have like it's the always the basics you fall down on. We have, yeah, we have the policies and we have the protocols, but what actually is happening in the sluice rooms? You know, what actually is happening in the bathrooms? Um, you know, who is stopping the antibiotics consistently all the time? So one of the more useful things I found, um, oh God, years ago now was a trigger tool that now is all the rage. But at that stage, Health Protection Scotland, I think were the first to bring it in, certainly on this side of the world. So we, it's, it's essentially a checklist to make sure you're doing what you're doing. So there's nothing really very mm-hmm. found in it. But what we now do is if we have two, two or more cases, but even two cases on a ward, we bring in a trigger tool. And the advantage of reviewing the data every week consistently is we always have, well, was that ward not affected last week and the week before? Have we the trigger tool in? So the benefit of having that multidisciplinary conversation every week systematically is it allows us to track backwards as well. So we don't have fancy technology in the hospital at all. The reason we have this 
access database is because we've a DOS-based laboratory system. I don't even know what that means, but we do. We've we've got the model system that it sends results in for the patient information. And then the public health notifications is on yet another system. And the Mm. infection control nurses at one point had their own system, as did the antimicrobial pharmacists. So that's what Mairead was saying. We just created an access database to get everything together. But, you know, as for the reasons, Martin, generally over the years, it's hygiene, uh, it's humans and hygiene and lapses in basic stuff. You know, mm-hmm. there's never one good, one big trigger. And a lot of the time when we've increased incidence, it's not an outbreak. It's just an increased incidence. And you know yourself, the, the literature supports that, you know, even when people have sequenced um, C-diff, generally they're not related but, you know, when you have enough people with comorbidities that are colonized in the room. So I think the best we can certainly do in our context is just keep a lid on it and prevent the preventable by detecting and acting fast, mm-hmm. but with the context of having very limited isolation facilities. Does that um, answer your question? It, it does, yeah. I mean, are you actively encouraging people to send specimens? Because we've had yes. an issue here where people well if they've had an appearance you don't need to send it and if they've had this you don't need to send it and and i i oh. to me i always felt the best thing to do is to find as much as you could to reduce the the opportunity yes. for transmission yes. and i mean even you say it sends uh, if it takes the shape of the container you'll test it yes what i found was in clinical practice if if somebody has got a loose very loose stool and they're on an incontinence pad the modern incontinence pad is that good at soaking yes. up all the moisture what you end up with is a fairly solid lump, which when you sent it to the lab, didn't take the shape of the container, so therefore wouldn't get tested. And so it's, there are some they, clinical practices yeah. tricky thing as well. Yeah, but that's where you pick up a phone and talk to somebody as well. Yeah. Do you well, know, you the hope. Yeah, yeah. You know so, so essentially our lab, anything that takes the shape of the container gets tested. Um, so there are times when we have the laxative rounds and we do suddenly see a pseudo increase in positive results um but they're usually pcr positive and eia negative Hmm. when we ring so we would definitely not be calling them cases but from an infection control perspective it is useful knowledge to know Hmm. that somebody is colonized with c diff so you ever be careful with your laxatives there lads you know so we we would we encourage i suppose look at we're ireland's a small country and we're a small hospital compared to international big hospitals so we're a big hospital in ireland but generally you know phone calls and people or walk down to the lab and talk to somebody that's the way we operate which i appreciate bigger hospitals can't do but that's we would we've an interest in c diff and we always have but we would always encourage people to send us the specimen if they suspect c diff mm. and even throughout the pandemic we never stopped testing for c diff we did that seven days a week um, i think you make that point that paper, the point well on the paper about the universal testing and the potential under-reporting if you don't you yeah. don't take that approach that you've described. What, one of the other things I noticed in the paper, you, you said you introduced some hydrogen peroxide uh, vapour decontamination. Yeah. Um, a lot of people do use that to try and control C. diff. Did you, about when did you introduce that in the context of your C. diff journey? It was 2013, yeah. Okay, yeah, and you still use that we still use it, but I suppose for infrastructure, um, it's not really. We can't really do it in our in our bedded or uh, our multi bedded yeah. areas. It's more so for our single 
hospital rooms. And I do remember when it was first introduced in the hospital, the logistics of, you know, trying to get companies in to do it. It was a huge undertaking at the time. Mm. Um, but uh, it's it's become established into kind of our routine, our routine decontamination process once C. diff patients are discharged from rooms. But yeah. I suppose try, trying to get it in place in kind of more broader clinical areas, it's still proving challenging. Yeah, I guess that's still limited to 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 discharge CDF patients who happen to be in a single room. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, look, I, you know, I think I think it was about fifteen percent. I remember correctly on the paper about single rooms you have. So it's, it, it must be a real struggle to try and find uh, to try and find uh, room for for these patients. But I, I did like I really did like the point. I think you, you've touched on it well, Fidelma, is that. Um, and I, I probably were captured by the title, you know, the status quo. This this really is a paper that does articulate the hard work over many years to keep something at a constant level, um, essentially over that time. Do, do you feel? How do you feel uh, that your overall benchmark? Because you know, you've had a little bit of an up, a little bit of a down, but overall, you know, been relatively stable. How do you are you comfortable with that baseline level? Do you think that's about as good as you can get for the time being? I mean, we always want to do more, but you know. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, I, I don't think you can ever be comfortable with a level like we're over the, the national target. But again, the national target is set on a disparate group of even tertiary hospitals. And it's not mm. like, like and we would tend to test more than other centres and we do test seven days a week. Um, no, I don't think you should ever be comfortable with a C. diff rate because from a patient perspective, it's a horrible disease. Like, you know, to labour the point, if you've ever had food poisoning and known that rush to go to the toilet, imagine being a patient and being sick and sharing a multi-bedded bay even before diagnosis. Like it's horrendous, even for people in the full of their health, never mind elderly people. It's such an awful disease um, and an awful infection. And I've had, I chair the European, um, the ESCMED C. diff study group, and we now have a patient representative on our executive committee. And it's been really eye-opening listening to his story about how he had recurrent C. diff, um, how that impacted him, his life, um, everything. So, you know, it's, 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 I've never been comfortable with, with accepting any kind of C. diff um, but you can you you have to constantly keep at it. Um, so you know we can definitely keep doing better. Like our antimicrobial stewardship, you have to keep at that. Um, you know, but of course that's that's ena- enabled by better diagnostics because mm. we're back to human beings. So mm. if you start with empiric therapy, really what you want to do is faster diagnosis to get narrow spectrum agents into your patient and reduce your risk of C diff. Yeah, no. You want to have reliable cleaning protocols. Now, in fairness, our cleaners are fantastic in the hospital. They are they've they really part of the infection control team and always with cleaning representative always comes to our outbreak meetings. Um and they've they're very much on board and interested in patients, but you always have to keep at that because it's always the small bits that that break that chain or, or create the chain. Um, likewise, we've got these small sluice rooms on all of our wards, um, you know, and what are the protocols around there? So there's always room for improvement, mm. but it starts with prevention and then, you know, it goes into the, the action. Like I think in terms of our management, once we know somebody's positive, we're pretty good at that, but we can always mm. improve the, the upstream 
part of that process. I mean, developing mm-hmm. Brett's question, in the pre-2012 period, you, you just looked at this last 10 years, I'm assuming things were really quite high before that. And then so this is yeah. now we're down at the plateau. So I'm just wondering, you know, if you did want to make a step change and then carry on reducing, because you do seem to be flat and you, you know, it's, it's always like walking up and down escalator. Do you have any feel for the infections that are actually causing people to have the antibiotics which are triggering the C. diff? So is it pneumonias or urinary tract infections, or is it just a broad range of infections that, you know, you couldn't target one particular area like HAP or something like that, so that might make a difference? It's the predictable ones that depends on the year, or the, the time of the year. So there's always UTIs. Um, if, if even in Ireland, we get hot weather from time to time. So, you know, we see the predictable increase in our in our UTIs and gram negative sepsis when it gets hot. Um, you know, if there's pneumonias specifically in the wintry respiratory viral types, you know, times of the year. Um, you know, we've already because we've a big surgical center, you're always going to get your, you know, intra-abdominal infections. And we've also got a neurosurgical center, which actually the neurosurgical patients over the um 10 years, there was only about 50 cases, 49, 50. Yeah, 50 yeah. So so you know, I think in terms of our stewardship approach, we um we eat we we it varies. We either target wards where there's been an issue with seeding. So let's say if there's two or more cases on a ward, the antimicrobial pharmacist and one of the microbiologists would literally do a point prevalence um study on that day just to get a handle on who's an antibiotics and why, and then take it from there. Um, so we either focus on wards or we focus on conditions. Um, the benefit of just going up to a ward and focusing on a ward is there's a lot of education of staff while you're up in the ward, because generally people, when they see you up there, they go, oh, why are you here? And it starts a conversation about antibiotics um, and also with the nurses, not just the doctors, because on our wards, the doctors prescribe. We don't have nurse prescribers in the wards. We do have some nurse prescribers in ED. Um, but... Um, so that would be our stewardship approach. We mainly go wards, but from time to time, we might focus on a, a, a pneumonia or a UTI kind of problem. One other thing that, um, that uh, caught my attention was the community-associated CVI. And um, a couple of things with that. One, that the quite younger people with, with community-associated CDI, but also in recent year year or two, you've had a bit of an uptick, perhaps, mm-hmm. in, in that. And I think the other, one of the things you talk about as well is you know, this, the potential under-reporting of, of what's actually going on with regards to community CDF, community-acquired CDF. Do you have any any comments about, about that? Yeah, I, I'll hand over to Maraid in a, in a bit. First of all, remember our context. We're a hospital and test what gets into us mm. so from a start it's not representative of what's happening mm. in the community um now in fairness most gps when they see diarrhea it's not c diff um mm. and then when we get it from the community the community essentially by our definitions means anybody that hasn't had an overnight hospital stay <laughs> so there's lots of other people in the community, actually, that's mm. the next paper we're trying to trying to get out. <laughs> but sure, we'll really give you a teaser of it. Well, don't, don't, um, don't give away too much then, we'll have to get you back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, if you think about it, you know, so there's lots of other people that are at high risk of C. diff that are in between people sitting in their own homes and people sitting on a hospital bed. So there's mm. lots of people that access healthcare. 
um, you know, be it day wards, day surgery, dialysis, you know. So, you know, we kind of really believe, and that's where, like, Maraid's presenting at ECMAT, if anybody's going to Copenhagen on this. I think she's a poster one of the day. Yeah. Oh, okay. mm. You know, because we were curious about this. Um, you know, when I started um, in HPSC, so I worked and I set up CDF surveillance in Ireland. So the the... Case definitions we use are the same case definitions that ECDC and ECMAD and CDC used at the time. So they are what they are. And maybe they were designed for a healthcare system of the time. But I don't know about all of your countries, but in our country now, more and more people are accessing daycare um, or healthcare is coming to them at home. So, mm-hmm. they're, they're, you know, maybe we need to start thinking about how best to capture those kind of people. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we have a push in the UK for virtual wards, so where people are are managed at, at home by a consultant team. So there would be yeah. an awful lot more management of patients in primary care settings. I think. Yeah, uh, and and, and and the thing is, yeah, the community also is primary care and community care, and then hospital yeah. care coming out to the community, and then it's just people minding their own business that happen to have be on an antibiotic at mm. home. So in terms of I suppose back to the paper, data is always data for action. So at the moment, our data is useful for action in the hospital. But in terms of action outside the hospital or the bits between the home and the hospital, I think that we probably need to relook at our case diff definitions again for C. diff. But it probably isn't just for C. diff, it's probably for all the other things we count. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, healthcare is changing so much, isn't it, as you just described? And yeah, yeah. So, it's not you just know. In the home. Yeah. So so I think that and it, it's it's been interesting. So myself and Maraid, um, not only do we talk a lot, as we said at the start, but we've worked together very closely. <laughs> we're, we're kind of like we're, we're almost like an old married couple at this stage. But we talk a lot about C. diff and case definitions. Maraid worked in HPSC as well. So we both have a background in national as well as local surveillance. And, you know, we both firmly believe that the, this, of course, numbers are only important if they count for patients. Mm. Um, they're only as good as you have to be aware of the limitations around that. And there's no perfect case definition and there's no perfect surveillance system. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely that 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 jump in community is interesting. Now, of course, something else happened that began with C that wasn't C diff in the last few years in Ireland as around the world. And that definitely impacted on people accessing mm-hmm. health so maybe people that would have been otherwise diagnosed in hospital, certainly in 2020, weren't exactly running into hospital. So mm. that may have accounted for some of that too. Yeah, it'd be fascinating to see what happens with that. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, I just want to mention two quick things. You mentioned DOS computers. I looked that up. 1995, I think, was the last update for DOS computers. So there you go. You are working with some primitive... Uh, uh, equipment there. And um, would it be remiss of me to mention the Six Nations? Uh, oh, definitely not. Well, thanks very much. We're great. That's <laughs> <laughs> mm, yeah. the yes. World Cup, though. That's the issue. That's the, that's the, <laughs> that's the thorn in the side. Well, well, the, the irony of the Six Nations is um, that my husband, um, who before the Six Nations, Dublin played Meath, which was much more important in GAA football, so, you know, it's GAA football, was Aussie rules is, a, is probably derived from a mixture of GAA football and rugby, um, yeah. except the lads are amateurs. 
So he <laughs> he had his blue Dublin shirt on. Maraid's from Cork, by the way, but we won't go into that today. We've constantly <laughs> great rivalry in in Ireland between Dublin and Cork. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and he changed from his blue shirt, having Dublin won, into his green shirt. And um, sat shouting at the TV. I thought the man was going to have a heart attack at one point. But anyway, he's, he's reliably alive still. Yeah, actually. yeah. I was doing pretty much the same thing myself. Anyway, yeah. thank you very much, both of you. Uh, I mean, it's a really interesting paper. And it shows you how hard it is to actually stay still sometimes. It's just trying mm -hmm. to find if you do want to move on to the next level, how we manage that really. Because um, you know, there, there will be a bottom line. And as you described, your cases seem to be, you know, it's not as if you can target one particular infection to say, could we do something about that? So it's been fascinating. So thank you so much, Mairead, and thank you for Delma for chatting to us. And, uh, uh, you know, I've really enjoyed the, the paper. Look forward to the one you've teased us about as well with the community. <laughs> now, now, now Mairead has to write it. Ah, yes. yes, there's no way back now. Okay. Okay. Well, th thanks very much, everybody. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks for asking us. Take care. Bye. That's brilliant. Bye. Thanks a million. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll see you again on the next episode of Infection Control Masses. <laughs>